my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Financial Heresy, where we talk about how money works so that you can make more, keep more, and give more. Today, I've got a very exciting guest on the podcast. His name is Dr. Walter Block. He has published dozens of books. Two of them are some of my favorite books, and uh, that's what we're talking about today. The two books are called uh, The Privatization of Roads and Highways, 
and defending the undefendable. Uh, he is a fighter for liberty and freedom. Um, and uh, the, the, the reason why I'm so excited to talk to him is because he goes straight for the jugular, the heart of the issues. Like many people who are, you know, trying to advance ideas of freedom and liberty are going to go for the low hanging fruit that most people will agree upon. Things like, hey, we need a little bit more limited government in certain areas that are negatively impacting people's lives. But he goes all the way and shows how even in areas that are considered by most to be undefendable, things like uh, prostitution, child labor, uh, roads and highways, he goes straight for these controversial issues and shows how uh, life would be better for uh, everybody involved uh, to have uh, much more limited or even removed government in these areas. So really, uh, really enticing uh, topics here, really thought provoking, really excited to uh, discuss these issues with him and share some of these thoughts and ideas uh, for everybody to uh, to listen to and uh, and hear. So uh, without further ado, let's uh, dive in and uh, uh, talk to Dr. Walter Block. Well, Dr. Block, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, like I said before uh, we started recording here, I've got your book uh, right in front of me, Defending the Undefendable, and behind me, The Privatization of Roads and Highways. Absolutely fantastic books, and um, you go right for the jugular on some of these very controversial topics that I'd like to talk with you about today. So uh, before we dive in, can you just give a brief um, a brief overview of your story, what got you into looking at these things and being kind of a, uh, a, a huge voice for uh, freedom? Well, uh, thanks for having me on your show, and I'd be happy to uh, do my best to answer all your questions, certainly that one. Uh, I started out in Brooklyn, and I'm Jewish, and every Jew in Brooklyn was a socialist, so I was a socialist. Uh, I was a buddy of Bernie Sanders. He and I were on the track team together in um, Madison High School, and I had roughly the same views as him. Oh, wow. And um, I was, you know, pinko, commie, socialist, whatever. I wasn't really that interested in it when I was in high school. I was more interested in girls and sports, but uh, my politics were uh, indistinguishable from his. And then I was in Brooklyn College, uh, maybe in my sophomore year, I forget, and Ayn Rand came to lecture at Brooklyn College, and I came to convert it to socialism because, you know, capitalism is evil. Uh, you have starving babies in the street with capitalism. Mm -hmm. And um, after the uh, lecture, uh, there was an announcement that there was this uh, lunch in her honor put on by the Ayn Rand Studies Club, or I forget what it was called, something like that. And I went and um, there was this long, long table, maybe 100 people on each side and Ayn Rand was sitting at the head of it and Nathaniel Brannon and uh, Alan Peikoff and Leonard Greenspan and her chief lieutenants were sitting there. And the only empty seats were at the other end. So I sat there and I turned to my neighbor and I said, you know, socialism is the way to go. Capitalism is evil. And he said, well, I don't really know that much about it, but the people who do are at th that end of the table. So I went and I stuck my head in between Heinz and Nathaniel Brandon's. And I said, there's a socialist here who wants to debate someone on socialism and capitalism. They like debating. <laughs> Brandon was very nice, very gentle. 
And he said, I will come over to the other end of the table. There's no room here now uh, on two conditions. One, you read two books that I will recommend, and they were Atlas Shrugged and Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. And the other promise that he made me make was that I would continue the discussion until we settled it and not let it lapse with one time. Well, I read the books, and uh, I went to his house and Ayn Rand's house, oh, maybe uh, half a dozen times. Hmm. And I was converted. I, I was a free enterprise. Maybe not an anarcho-capitalist yet. That didn't happen until I met Murray Rothbard. Um, and then I became a full-fledged um, advocate for liberty. But I was, you know, reasonably uh, limited government libertarianism. The uh, only justification for government would be to protect the people and property. And to that end, you need only uh, armies to keep foreign bad guys off of us not to go exporting democracy all around mm -hmm. the world, police to keep local bad guys off of us, not to stop victimless crimes, just to stop murder, rape, and theft, and courts to determine, you know, who the good guys and who the bad guys are. And that was my view until I met Murray, and then I became an anarcho-capitalist. I think that the only good government is no government at all. <laughs> or, put it another way, what we really need is more governments. We need about seven and a half billion of them, namely one for each of us. Mm. So we're each sovereigns and, and nobody can compel us to pay taxes or whatever. So that's my background. Then I, uh, I was a philosophy major and I was really unsure as to what's the best vehicle to promote liberty because I was really bit by the liberty bug. And it was between economics and philosophy, and I was unsure. So I took a master's in each of them, master's in philosophy at Brooklyn College and in economics at City College. Hmm. And then I finally decided it was economics, and I got a PhD at Columbia. And I've been a teacher ever since, professor, writer, and a promoter of liberty to the best of my feeble ability. Wow, that's, that's incredible. I did not realize that uh, you kind of studied with and uh, and knew some of these amazing people. Um, so I take it Bernie Sanders was not there at the table with you when you uh, asked to debate with Ayn Rand. <laughs> no, he was not. Um, I don't like to brag, but I have one thing I have to brag about. I shook the hand of Ludwig von Mises, and I mm. never washed it since, so it's a little dirty. But if you, uh, if you shake my hand, you channel Mises. All right. Well, uh, someday I hope to meet you in person so I can uh, get a little bit of that. <laughs> That's great. Um, and I really like what you uh, finished off with by saying, we don't need more government, but we do need more governments, uh, namely, you know, seven and a half billion more. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I really like that. That's, uh, you know, the the sovereign individual um, uh, aspect. So let's, let's get into some of the things that, uh, uh, that you've written about. And, um, uh, like I said, these, uh, many people consider these like, you know, extremely controversial. This is not, this is not the, the, the low hanging fruit, if you will, of like, Hey, we should probably not be, you know, bombing children in the middle East. Um, it's like most people, except for maybe the, 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 the people doing that would probably agree. Um, this is this is the going to the heart of it. This is going, you know, you, you go for the jugular here and you 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 go straight for these controversial topics here. And um, uh, the first one is roads and highways. The the classic line. Anybody, anybody, anytime somebody starts saying we need more freedom, we need less government, um, you know, anything like that. The first response 
by people who love big government is, oh, who's going to build your roads and highways then? <laughs> and so you wrote a whole book about just that. And uh, so uh, could you could you briefly summarize uh, the privatization of roads and highways? Right. Well, a lot of people can't envision uh, highways, streets, avenues, thoroughfares being uh, run by private enterprise, but the first ones were. My research went back to England in around the 600s, and certainly in the U.S. in the Revolutionary War times in the 18th century, 17th century, there were private roads. Uh, they were called turnpike roads, and you paid a fee to go on the road. And And the fees usually varied with how many uh, horses you had on your carriage. And um, if you if you just walked, it would be very cheap. If you uh, had a one horse, that would be a little bit more expensive. If you had a, a, a wagon uh, with the, the two axles and four horses, it would it cost more. And they even uh, based the price on the width of the wheel. If hmm. your wheel was very narrow, think ice skates. Well, then you'd put ruts in the road and they would charge you more. Mm. On the other hand, if you had a wide wheel, you would smooth out the ruts and they would give you a cheaper price. Hmm. And, and it was a perfectly viable system. And uh, what happened was that the government uh, uh, refused to um, protect the road owners against thieves, namely people who would go on the road and not pay. And the government was the monopoly of violence. And if they refused to um, pay uh, uh, to protect private property, well, then you can't have a viable system. So uh, they they took over the roads, but the roads were, were doing fine. Hmm. Uh, so don't tell me that uh, private enterprise can't have roads. They can, and they can have railroads. Uh, uh, in the in New York City, uh, the BMT and the IRT were originally private uh, subways. The hmm. IND was, orig uh, was originally governmental, but uh, the BMT and the IRT subway stations are uh, private, and uh, they were going to raise their fare from a nickel to a dime, and then the government said, oh, that's unconscionable. You can't do that. We're nationalizing or municipalizing. And then guess what? They, they raised the price a lot <laughs> more than that. So you, there's nothing wrong with long, thin things like uh, subways or railroads or highways or uh, being in, in the private sector. Okay, so that's a little bit of the history. Why, why was I motivated to write this book? Because at the time, there was something like 35,000 people a year who would die on the highways. Hmm. And nowadays, it's up to 40,000, give or take. Every year it varies, uh, but it's somewhere between the high 30s and the low 40s. Thousands of people die every year. And, you know, to just put this in perspective, how many people died in 9-11? It was just around 1900 or something like that. Now, look, every life is precious. And I don't mean to uh, dismiss the 1900 people killed. Oh, was it 3,000? I might be mixing it up with how many people died in Katrina in, in New Orleans. Hmm. Uh, even I think that was 1,900 and 3,000 people died in New York City. And everyone was, you know, uh, apoplectic. This is horrible. And these were one off, thank God. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, every year, 40,000 people die and nobody says squat. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like uh, it's inevitable. Well, we have... You know, why do we have pretty good shirts? Why do we have pretty good um, uh, cough drops? Uh, why do we have pretty good, um, I don't know, uh, shoes or, or motorcycles or bicycles or, or corn? 
because of competition. And if somebody doesn't provide good shoes at, at a low price, uh, they tend to lose money. And if they keep the error of their ways, they, they go broke and they have to do something else. And then people who can make shoes better or whatever it is, computers or uh, wristwatches, well, then they can take over. Namely, we owe our civilized lifestyle to competition and private property rights. Well, the thesis of my book was let's apply that to roads. Mm-hmm. And then um, I, I think maybe one third of the book is uh, spent on, well, what could a private road owner do uh, to reduce death rate? Mm. And uh, let me g- just give you a few of the yeah. suggestions that I had. And I'm no expert on this. It's just sort of common sense. Uh, one thing is, you know, the major highways, a minimum speed is 40, maximum speed is 70. Mm-hmm. You try going 70, especially in the left lane, and <laughs> people are going to go berserk <laughs> because, you know, you're slowing down traffic. Right. You want to do 70, you stay in the right lane. Well, uh, maybe it's not this, uh, maybe that speed limit is wrong. Maybe it's not the speed, it's the variation in the speed. The mm. fact that some people are doing 50 miles an hour and other people are doing 80. Mm. Maybe what we should do, and I um, just contemplated this, is have each lane have its own. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl level scandals. 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Speed limit. Yeah. Namely, in the right lane, everyone's got to do um, 60. In the middle lane, everyone's got to do 70. And in the left lane, everyone's got to do 80. Would that, would that save lives? I don't know. But, but if, you, if I try that on my lane, on my highway, and you tried instead of 60, 70, 80, you tried 65, 75, 85, or 50, 60, and 70, or whatever it is, then we'd see. We'd mm-hmm. have competition. See, right yeah. now, we have one rule of the road for all the roads, and it comes yeah. from Washington, D.C., and there are a bunch of uh, nincompoops, whereas uh, in shirts, not, we don't have one way of making shirts. You know, you want to make sure it's a different way, and, and if you can outcompete me, well, then shirts will be made your way. So I'm saying, let, let's try that. And then another way to save lives, in, in, in addition, to each lane should have its own speed. Right now, they say uh, slower traffic, stay right, but they never give you a ticket if you're doing 65 in the left lane. And now everybody's got to switch lanes uh, to get around you. Well, maybe the switching of lanes causes deaths. Mm. It's just plausible. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's plausible. And on my road, I would say, you know, uh, you do 65 in the left lane, Mm -hmm. I'm going to kick your butt. I'm going to, you know, penalize you very heavily. for creating lane changing. Right. And uh, another favorite of mine is um, uh, there are these two trucks, big, big 18 wheelers and one's behind the other. And you know, one's going to try to pass the other and it's going right. to take them 20 minutes to do it in 20 miles. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? You um, hit the gas and you go 90 miles an hour and you, you pass them before they can uh, blockade you. Well, I would have a rule that, you know, the, the slower truck should let the faster truck get by and, and, and stop racing them because you're <laughs> just blockading traffic. So I had, I don't know, a dozen or two things like that. Hmm. Another one was whenever there's a death, you put a big cross or a big Jewish star or a big Muhammad uh, emblem for their religion. And, and uh, I don't mean uh, five feet high, I mean 50 feet high. Mm. And maybe that'll scare some people because, you know, certain parts of the road veer around or whatever, and you want to make it safe. So I had a, a dozen or two suggestions like that, but I don't rely on any of them. What I rely on is competition. Right. The idea that different people have different roads and different uh, techniques. And now I say, hey, on my road, we had very few deaths. Whereas on Joe Brown's road, they, you know, they're dying like flies and everyone should come to my road. Right. Okay. And then the last third of the book was objections. 
objections to the idea that right, we have private right. roads. Yeah. One of the objections was, well, uh, Joe, you, you have a house on my street. Every time you come in or out, I'm going to charge you a million dollars. Namely, I'm going to blockade you in there. Sure. And that would be an objection. And it's commonly made. And the answer to that is, look, um, you never would have bought that house on my road unless you contractually obligated me not to do that. Right. And I would have an incentive not to do that because I want you to build a house or a factory on my road so mm. more people will go on my road. So I would promise you contractually that I'll never charge you any more than anyone else or you know something right. so, so that you'll be attracted to come to my road. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then I had a whole bunch of uh, objections uh, of that sort, and I try to refute all the possible objections I could think of. Another one was, um, well, right now we have eminent domain. Mm-hmm. You want to build a – what city are you now in, Joe? Uh, Phoenix, Scottsdale area. I'm sorry? Phoenix, Scottsdale area in Arizona. Phoenix. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, um, I'm usually in New Orleans, mm-hmm. and I want to build a road from New Orleans to Phoenix. Mm-hmm. How far is that? Maybe 2,500 miles, give or take. Mm-hmm. How many people own property between Phoenix and New Orleans? I don't know, a million <laughs> well, I'm, I right. want to build the road as, as the crow flies straight, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a, a holdout. My favorite holdout is uh, the guy from um, uh, South Park. Um, uh, what's his the, the fat kid from South Park. I forget his name. Yeah. Uh, he, he's going to be the holdout. And so I don't have to do it. Um, Cartman, Cartman from South Park. Cartman, right. So I don't have to build the road uh, as the, the crow flies. I can mm-hmm. build it with a little bend so that I avoid Cartman, um, uh, the holdout. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see, eminent domain means that uh, I just tell Cartman, you know, you're selling me the road at a price that I'm willing to pay. I'm the government. Yeah. But that would hardly be compatible with free enterprise. So another objection to this is you need the government to build a road in the first place. And um, the answer to that is um, uh, if Cartman was, you know, um, blockading the road, I I would build a tunnel under him or a bridge over him. And then I got into all sorts of, well, who owns up in the air? Who owns down to the earth? Uh, I got into a lot of convoluted um, objections Mm -hmm. uh, to this, but the the main two were those. Another one, uh, uh, let me just give you one more. Uh, What I did is I said, right now, 40,000 people are dying on the road. How many people do I think would die on the road if we had private enterprise? Not zero. Mm -hmm. The only way to have zero deaths is to have a speed limit of five miles an hour. And even then, probably you'd have a death or two. Sure. Uh, So I I estimated, um, uh, uh, what was it, Uh, one quarter of the people would die, namely 10,000 people a year would die on private roads. Hmm. And... um, I mean, you know, uh, private enterprise is not magic. It's just a very, very efficient system compared to government. But yeah. we're not in, in heaven here under free enterprise. You'd still have some debts. So um, uh, so I, I had a critic who said, well, um, well, then, uh, you know, um, private roads are guilty of killing 10,000 people. And I said, well, we're saving 30,000. Uh, sure. So it's better that way. So – that, that's uh, a 10-minute um, uh, review of the book, uh, the history of it, uh, how would it work, why would it save lives, um, uh, dealing with objections. Uh, another minor point was congestion. 
Mm. You know, I don't know what it's like in Phoenix, but in New Orleans during rush hour, you know, you don't yeah. go anywhere. You just sit there. Mm-hmm. And how would uh, we, how would private roads deal with that? You'd have peak load pricing, charge yeah. a lot more to get out on the road at uh, five o'clock or at night or eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, mm-hmm. So there are other benefits besides saving lives, saving uh, time. Uh, but the, the main focus is uh, to save lives and, and have more efficient economy. I wrote down three points while you were talking here. Uh, the first one is the other day I was leaving the gym and I was thinking about this interview and I was thinking if the if uh, proportionally the same number of deaths happened driving on this parking lot coming in and out of the gym, which is private property. Um, if somebody designed a parking lot that was so poorly designed that it was causing causing deaths, uh, all of the businesses in, that are in that area they would they would leave. Um, there would be uproar. Um, it would be you designed this, and there's there's ramifications for that. But because the government has a monopoly on it, there is no uh, there is no accountability there. Um, and uh, private companies already have experience maintaining so like when was the last time you hit a pothole in a parking lot <laughs> businesses don't want potholes in their parking lots but they're all over public roads so that was the first uh first point the second point that uh popped up is i want to i want to make sure that people are clear about this because this is that when people think of like hey if we privatize something that is currently maintained by the government they think of something like private prisons or internet companies which are essentially just extensions of the government because they're get granted government monopolies on things so we're not talking about private monopolies granted by the government we're not talking about private public partnerships right this is this is purely privatization of roads right absolutely Okay. So then that would always allow for competition. If I make the road between Arizona and California um, and uh, it's it's a terrible road and I'm charging way too much, somebody can build a road literally right next to it in that whole entire expanse of desert and make it better and charge less and they would get all the business. Right. One, one idea that, and I can't, it's been a little bit of time since I read the book, but I, so I can't remember if you had this in the book or not, but another idea is driver tests. Like you see all the time people who are driving, who look like uh, they, it's been a while since they took a, a driver's test. And you can tell by the way they're driving that they are really not that confident in their driving abilities and skills. Um, and, uh, and so having some sort of aptitude testing for certain roads, maybe some companies would say, Hey, you have to go through our aptitude test and you have to score a certain uh, score to be able to drive on our roads. And that would drive down deaths immensely. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, not only uh, could they build a road next to you, if you had a bad road, they could build a road right on top of you. Uh, well, mm. uh, not right on top. You'd have to leave room for trucks. But sure. if uh, the tallest truck is, uh, I don't know, 15 feet high, and you build another road on top of that road, uh, 30 feet high, they don't own the area above them, mm. nor the area below them. Uh, so you get around that way. That that point about potholes in parking lots is magnificent. Uh, <laughs> I, I wish I had that in the book. Where were you when I wrote this book? I needed you. Uh, that that is that is a very very good point. Uh, I I certainly uh, benefit from that, and I appreciate that point. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on to the next very controversial topic. And this is where we get into some things that are maybe by many considered immoral. Things that are considered things that like nobody should do that or this would be bad for that person if they did it and therefore in our society they are illegal um and so the point is 
uh, that for many of these things, the fact that they're illegal actually makes them so much worse. And the first one that I'd like to talk about here is prostitution. You make a very strong case that it should actually be legalized, not not recommending like I wouldn't want anybody that I know or love or care about to be a prostitute. But the fact that it's illegal makes it much worse. And so uh, let's hear about that. Right. Vices are not crimes. I I believe prostitution is a vice, not qua libertarian, but qua person. Hmm. Look, I had a mother. She passed away. Uh, I have a wife. I have a sister. I have a daughter. I wouldn't want any of them to be prostitutes because I don't think that's a good way for them uh, to interact. But if they can find their uh, activities to adults. It was between consenting adults. I wouldn't want them to be put in jail for it because these are vices, not crimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, just because something is immoral or improper doesn't mean that we should uh, use the force of law. As a libertarian, I, I do believe in law and I believe in, in uh, coercive law, namely murder, rape, theft, theft, um, uh, arson, kidnapping, carjacking, whatever. Yes, use violence to stop those criminals. Hmm. And and don't um, make it a misdemeanor if you steal uh, less than uh, nine hundred and ninety dollars or something <laughs> like that. that. That's crazy. So I'm not against police stopping crime. I am against police stopping vices. And hmm. I, I I personally believe that prostitution is is a vice. I, I uh, we're not talking about just between consenting adults. We're not talking about children. Children sure. are another issue. Um. I just thought about one other objection that I dealt with in the book on roads. You know, what about the poor? That's always mm. an objection. What about the poor? And I, I think the poor would do a lot better not being yeah. killed because some poor people uh, <laughs> die. And also the economy would be much richer, so there'd be fewer poor people. So right. that would be my answer to that. But on prostitution, uh, when prostitution is illegal, it doesn't mean it ends. It means it goes underground. And now you have uh, people, very different types of people who are in charge of it. And they brutalize the um, uh, the women. Well, not just women. Uh, there are male prostitutes as well. And uh, they all get brutalized by these under um, underworld types uh, that are in charge. Mm-hmm. Look, right now in Nevada, apart from uh, Las Vegas, prostitution is legal. Mm. And in many countries in Europe, prostitution is legal. And the, um, the, the prostitutes are not um, uh, run over roughshod. They're, they're treated well. Uh, there's competition. Um, the, um, uh, the customers are, are treated well. Uh, it, it's a, an entirely different thing. It's sort of like uh, alcohol. When, when we prohibited alcohol, uh, people were shooting each other over alcohol turf. Now alcohol is legal. You want alcohol, you go to the supermarket or you go to the alcohol store and you buy alcohol and there's no shooting or anything like that. Well, it's similar with prostitution. When it's prohibited, uh, it goes underground. It doesn't end. It's the world's oldest profession. It'll still exist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, another problem with this is, look, if um, two people go to bed with each other, that's not a crime. Hmm. Yeah. And now all of a sudden money changes hands and that's a crime. Mm-hmm. Why should the very same thing not be a crime when there's no money changing hands and then the money changes hands and now it's a crime? What, mm-hmm. What's this antipathy to commerce? Yeah. Look, um, I want to give you, um, I don't know, uh, what do I want to give you? I want to give you this pen and you accept this pen mm-hmm. and that's legal. And now I want to give you this pen and I want to charge you a dollar for it. And now that's permitted by law. 
Right. I mean, it's the same pen. Yeah. So why should in one case it be legal and the other case be illegal when it's the exact same act, only in one case this money involved changing hands and the other it's not? What's this antipathy to, to money changing hands on a voluntary basis? So yeah. if two people go to bed with each other, that's legal. And then one pays the other for doing that. And now that's illegal. Why? Uh, uh, there's no, there's no reason, no justification for that. Yeah. I, I even, even one step farther, if I ask a woman to come over and I pay her to come over and we have sex, that's a crime. If I set up a video camera and then post that video of us online and I still pay her for that, that's now considered creating pornography and that's legal. So just the act of filming it and putting it online, now that makes it okay. But if we don't have the video camera, now it's illegal. It's there, there, There's really no difference. It's only the government could come up with something like this. Uh, only the government could come up with um, banning nail clippers on planes because they're too dangerous. <laughs> I mean, they're weird people, these government people. Yeah. Um, one, uh, one other, uh, uh, thought that I had is if, uh, imagine like, like, like just like the war on drugs, which we'll get into is, uh, like you force the people who are already prone to committing crimes and doing bad things. They're the only people left who are willing to take over that. And it suddenly becomes very profitable because it's illegal. And um, like, imagine if you were like Tinder is a dating app, you can you pay money to Tinder, and it sets you up with people that you can go out on dates with. And many times it's for one night stands and for hooking up. Um, Just one more feature on there where you could pay for a date. um, That would eliminate like, I'd much rather have Tinder in charge of prostitution than uh, drug cartels or Amazon in charge of it versus, you know, drug cartels. It's like, at if something like that's going to happen, we would like it to be out in the open as much as possible, as safe as possible, and run by people with at least better morals than criminal gangs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then, okay, so when you said that about the the poor people on the roads, I, you know, we'll circle back to that because I wanted to make one point about that, that um, a lot of people make that objection about public schools as well, that if we get rid of public schools, which are absolutely terrible and ineffective at the stated goal, um, that that poor people would not be able to have an education. And the private uh, sector is the only place that has actually been able to produce free education because taxpayers pay for public education. It's not free. It's just a matter of who's paying for it. Well, what is YouTube? That is free. And I have a buddy who's a uh, high school science teacher. The night before his test to get certified to teach science to high schoolers, he realized hey, I didn't go to school for science. I went to school for history, but I'm going to become a science teacher. So he spent four hours watching science YouTube videos and then went and took the test. And now he's qualified to teach high school science. Well, why can't the high schoolers just... And YouTube is free. And so if they could do that with education, why can't they do that with roads? Why can't you have a a, a free road that is paid for through advertising or something like that? Like there's... Just because something is private doesn't mean free free versions of it are not going to be available. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives 
but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramps business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramps software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe... Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you talked about the parking lot. The parking lot is a bunch of roads, as far <laughs> right. as I'm concerned, and that's for free. That's true. So the store owner wants people to come to the store and wants to make it easier for them to come. So right. they provide um, uh, free um, um, parking lot services. Um, I, I I would go uh, additionally uh, uh, um, on the education uh, there would hardly be a Catholic school or a Jewish school or a Muslim school that would turn away people uh, who were very poor and couldn't afford it. Uh, so it would be free not only on YouTube or electronic um, uh, 
But, you know, 50 years ago, uh, there's no church or synagogue related school that would turn away people, kids Mm -hmm. from their school who couldn't afford it. And they would do it for free and they, you know, throw in a breakfast or a lunch or something as well. So we need not worry about that. Uh, But this whole argument of worrying about the poor, uh, the poor in in this country have colored TVs. The (laughs) poor in this country, they don't have a Maserati, uh, but they have a Volkswagen uh, 10 years old, whereas uh, in other countries, uh, the middle class can't even afford that. Uh, uh, What is it? A rising tide lifts all boats. Trickle down theory, which is reviled, I think is true. Uh, If you get everyone being rich or the middle class being rich and uh, the poor poor also benefit. Um, Look, why is it that barbers um, make more money now than they made 100 years ago? The technology, let's say, hasn't changed or maybe not barbers, but shoeshine people are – why? Because uh, we now have innovation and uh, we have um, uh, much more high pr- productivity and the alternative options to these people is much higher. So the poor get uplifted by, by wealth created in, in, the, in the general society. So yeah. I, I think that – but that's always an objection to anything uh, uh, of a free enterprise nature. Well, the poor wouldn't get uh, money. Well, they'd be private charity uh, in general. And uh, by the way, the um, – what is it? The red states are much more charitable than the blue states. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people who are more free enterprise oriented are more charitable. I wanted to mention uh, one other thing. Um, uh, I wanted to read my favorite uh, quote from Thomas Sowell, mm. uh, S-O-W-E-L-L, um, one of my favorite economists on, on this competition for roads. And what he says, let me read this. It is hard to imagine a more stupid or more dangerous way of making decisions than by putting those decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. Mm. Well, who are the people in charge of 40,000 deaths? The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Hmm. They're in charge of of the roads. Do they pay any price individually when another death occurs? Not a penny. And yet the decision rests with them. Whereas if it was in a private uh, road and uh, somebody died on your road, God forbid, um, you would pay a price. Right. Well, we, we, and, and if you make a bad shirt, you, you pay a price. So that's why we have pretty good shirts and pretty lousy highways, because the shirts are private and, and not the highways. Imagine if the government were making shirts. Yeah. So they'd be crappy shirts and no one would pay a penalty for, uh, for, for the lousy shirts. It's sort of like commie cola behind the Iron Curtain. It wasn't very good. And <laughs> there are good reasons why it wasn't very good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk about child labor. Um, and, uh, depending on the time, this may be the last, uh, last one we can hit here, but child labor is something that is, uh, looked at as a barbarous relic of the past. Um, and it's so good that we don't have kids working today. Instead, um, aren't we, aren't we, uh, privileged that we get to have our kids in buildings locked in there eight hours a day at risk of <laughs> everything going on today in public schools, like, you know, shootings and gender ideologies. And um, you get 15 minutes of break, you know, to run around on a playground, playground before they sit you back down in a desk and force feed you something you'll never use again in your life. So um, that's obviously a utopia for a child, right? So let's talk about child labor and uh, why it should be allowed. 
Well, first of all, when we, when we talk about child labor, we're not talking about uh, child actors uh, who are making um, 100000 per episode of, of the, the show that they're in. And we're not talking about prodigies, musicians who are playing the violin in front of an orchestra. Uh, that, that's a different issue. They're, they're not in trouble. Mm-hmm. When we talk about child labor, what we usually mean is uh, in the in the 16th century or the 18th century, some kid working uh, cleaning a um, um, uh, fire, uh, uh, some machinery, and the machinery chomps him up and kills him, mm-hmm. or working in a coal mine or something like that, or working not eight hours a day but 12, 15 hours a day, uh, and you know, in, in a dangerous factory with all sorts of dangerous material around. Yeah. Uh, that kind of child labor, we we all oppose. All people of goodwill uh, are against that. So now the question comes, well, why don't we have it nowadays? And there are two theories. One theory is, well, the government in its largesse and its uh, bountifulness uh, declared it illegal. And that's why we don't have it. That's one hypothesis. The mm-hmm. other hypothesis, the correct one, is we're rich enough nowadays <laughs> so we can afford not to have kids working in um, in coal mines. Mm. And the proof of this is, look, if we uh, said that the 16-year-old kids and below couldn't work in, um, in the year, I don't know, um, 1550, what would have happened to kids? They all would have died. Mm, yeah, because we were so poor. Well, not all, but many of them would have died uh, because we were so poor in the 16th century that uh, we needed the work of uh, pretty much everyone. Okay, maybe not two-year-olds, but seven-year-olds. Uh, yeah, you have to work. Yeah. Uh, so then, what happened is we got a little richer every century. And every century they passed another law saying that that age can't work anymore, thus attempting to take credit for the fact that we were richer and therefore we didn't need as many children working. Hmm. Uh, but the, the proof of the pudding is that if they, uh, if they were too fast, um, uh, there'd be deaths. And we do have child labor in, in some parts of Africa and Asia. And uh, what happens is um, uh, when we eliminate that child labor by law, the kids have to go to garbage dumps to find food or they get into prostitution. Mm. And we talked about prostitution before, but we were talking about adult prostitution on a voluntary basis. Right. This prostitution is a very different kind of – this is child prostitution. This is a, an a abomination, a pure mm. evil. And it comes about because of this a seemingly goodwill um, uh, effort to stop child labor. When, mm. Look, pretty much everybody is doing what they think is best for themselves. Yeah. If I tell you to stop with doing what you're sell, doing what you're now doing, you're going to have to do your second best thing, mm. which wasn't as good as the first best thing in your in your eyes. Well, right now there's some kid in Bangladesh who's working in a dangerous coal mine, let's say, yeah. and if we say you can't do that by law, well. His next best option isn't as good as the one that he's got now. Mm-hmm. And the proof of it is that he or his parents chose that for him. The next best option might be prostitution or going to a garbage dump and looking for uh, for food. Yeah. Namely, we're worsening him. No, the best way to get that kid out of the child labor in Bangladesh or wherever it is, is to follow Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. How do nations get wealthy? free enterprise, private property, uh, uh, adopt that system, and then the, the child labor will go away. And that's the only way it'll go away, because if you just ban it, you're worsening the uh, condition of these children. Hmm. I think one of the, uh, one of the proofs that uh, 
um, that it's t- at least today not uh, not as bad as like what people initially think of when they hear the words child labor is the fact that one of the ways wealthy families pass down their wealth is uh, is by uh, by the time their kids are you know in their 20s, they've already had 10 to 15 years experience working in the family business because that's one form of child labor that is still legal. Um, and so I can have my kids work for me and I can teach them how to how to do the books and I can show them the things that are required to run a small business and how to invest and do these things. And most families don't have access to that because they work at regular jobs. They don't own their own business. And so for their kids, by the they, they're going to have to wait until they're you know 16 to be able to start uh, working at a at an entry level job versus um, you know being able to do that at a much younger age when the when when uh, when they would uh, maybe like to instead and so uh, I think that it's one of those things where when it's outlawed for everybody else uh, but there is one loophole that allows generally wealthier families to be able to do it. Well, maybe that's a sign that everybody should be allowed to do it. You know, there's another point I wanted to make uh, vis-a-vis uh, child labor, and that's the minimum wage law. Mm. A lot of children don't have productivity levels above, uh, what is it now, $15 an hour. Bernie Sanders wants to make it 25 so they mm-hmm. can't get jobs. And then people are begging them, uh, especially uh, during the summer when school is out. To, you know, employ a child. And then what they'll do is they'll have a special minimum wage law for teenagers, lower, which Mm. indicates that the minimum wage law is creating unemployment. It's not raising anyone's wage. And it's good for kids, uh, high school kids, to get out in the summer and, you know, deliver a newspaper or get ask people if they want fries with that or uh, low level Mm -hmm. jobs where, where you learn on the job. And that's the point you're making. Not only should um, the children of rich people who own companies have that option. But um, every kid, every high school kid or even intermediate school kid should be able to, you know, sell lemonade or whatever it is that they could do. Mm-hmm. But the minimum wage law stops it. And here we're saying child labor is good, not of the bad kind mm-hmm. uh, in, in a coal mine, but uh, to learn uh, the skills, as you were saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then in terms of like, you know, we, you talked about everybody was so poor in let's say the 1500s, the 1600s that they had to work. Well, that was even more true. If you go back even farther than that, you know, if, if we go back to like hunter gatherer lifestyle, it wasn't just the kids weren't just sitting around doing nothing. As soon as the boys got old enough, they'd go off on the hunting, hunting trips with the men. And, um, you know, in, in farming cultures with agriculture, it's the kids are, you know, learning how to cook and learning how to maintain the house and farm and, and all that. And it's, it's, a it's, it's a, a group effort in order to survive. And so, um, the, uh, the outlawing of that before, it was already going to be done with would just make people worse off, not, not actually better off. That makes sense. Yes, Um, absolutely. Well, I think we're probably going to have to uh, have you back on another time to talk about some of the other topics. But for now, I would like to highly recommend um, the books uh, that we've been talking about here, defending the undefendable. Um, The other book was the privatization of roads and highways. I will put the links uh, to those books in the show notes. And then you are also a you're on Substack. So I'll put the um, the link to your newsletter there. And then you are also a professor at Loyola. 
And so for anybody who is a uh, interested in learning about um, freedom uh, in uh, today's uh, universities, um, I would recommend you to go check out uh, Dr. Block at Loyola. Thanks for having me on your show. It was a pleasure. I look forward to doing it again. Well, thanks so much for joining me and uh, you have a great day. You too. Bye. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilbur Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.